Welcome to the Authentic Church Podcast with Jeff and Fawn Peterson in Orange County, California, where our mission is simply to love God, love people, and live authentic. For more information on Authentic Church, visit us online at AuthenticOC.com. Thank you for listening. How's everyone doing today? It's kind of a like sleepy-ish day today, but... Um... We're believing that the Lord's going to impart some really amazing, how many, some wisdom today. How many of you were here last week? Awesome. Okay. So we laid a foundation last week about the doctrine of sin. Nobody likes to talk about sin, especially in our culture today. It's kind of a taboo subject, right? But it's so important as believers for us to understand the problem of humanity, because if we don't understand the reality of sin, we're not going to understand the need for the gospel. And it's not going to be so real to us. We won't share with others about the gospel if we don't understand the reality of sin. And so um, I know that that I tend to be much more of a teacher than a preacher. And so just engage your 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 thinking caps today and and track with me and let the Holy Spirit breathe life into these doctrines because these will set a really solid foundation for your faith as a believer as you walk with the Lord. And I'm so grateful for for um, Jeff and Vaughn and their desire to help disciple and teach people in truth. And that this whole year is being dedicated towards foundations of your faith. And if you really like internalize what the Lord wants to say through understanding these doctrines of the faith, I really believe it's going to make you stronger. It's going to make you value the word more. It's going to make you value community more. It's going to make you appreciate and understand salvation more. So last week we talked about the reality of sin, the pervasiveness of sin. It affects all humanity. And sin is powerful because we're born into sin and trespasses. We're born dead right? We're, we are, we're actually born dead spiritually. We're, our, our flesh is very alive, but we're dead spiritually. And uh, so we talked a little bit about human depravity, that in Adam all die, but that's setting the stage for the reality of in Christ, all can be made new and all can live. So we, we talked about the scriptural definition of sin, that sin really means to miss the mark or to fall short of God's glory. Anything that is different from the holiness and the perfection of God would be considered sin. That kind of sets the bar pretty high, don't you think? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23 says. Sin is essentially self-centeredness and pride as opposed to God's will. It's our will versus God's will. So sin is selfishness and pride. And the origin and the effect of that is the word of God reveals that sin entered first through Satan and then into humanity in the Garden of Eden through Adam and Eve. And since then, we've all been tied to that legacy of sin. Try as hard, I said that same thing last week, didn't I? As hard as we try, we can't stop sinning without some sort of intervention. Through one man, Adam... Sin entered the world, and through one man, Jesus, sin was atoned for. We we focused a little bit on Romans 5 last week. And this week, we're going to talk about the atonement. This is a fairly big theological word. Basically, it just means covering or purging, to make one, to reconcile, to pardon. And so how many of you, we, we, we sing these songs about, oh, the blood of Jesus, it washes white as snow. Oh, the cross, you made a way for me to enter the holy place. God, you became a man, you took on flesh. You, 
Uh, we sing these things, but sometimes I don't think we really understand the nature, the background, the depth of that. I mean, if somebody comes into this church for the first time, they've never heard the gospel, they're not a believer, and we're singing about, oh, the blood of Jesus, oh, the blood of Jesus. We're, and they're like, what kind of place is this? This is so weird. Like, when we don't understand the reality of what salvation means, what the cross actually means, it's not going to have any power or value to us if we don't understand it, right? So today we're going to talk a little bit about the atonement. The atonement essentially is the redemptive work of Christ. This involves his crucifixion, his resurrection, ascension, exaltation, glorification, his intercessory ministry, and his second coming. So all of that is encompassed in the atonement. We're not going to go through all of that today because that could take forever. But the plan of atonement essentially is created in the councils of the eternal Godhead before man was created. So this is a plan that God initiated and thought up in the councils of the Godhead before the need was ever apparent on earth. It's being accomplished in time through the work of Christ and the benefits of it are realized by man on God's terms and it will continue into eternity. This is something that you are going to be learning about throughout all of eternity. I mean, I'm kind of encouraged by that because it says in the book of Revelation that the elders that are surrounding the throne room of God, you know, when they get a fresh glimpse of the Lamb of God on the throne, they cast their crowns and they cry out again, holy, 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 worthy are you. You were able to take the seal and you redeemed from your blood from every tribe and nation, there's this constant revelation of the work of the cross that will continue through all eternity. So don't be discouraged if you don't get it all today. This is, I'm going to try and put some seed thoughts in place through the scripture that will help bring some things to um, deeper understanding. The atonement means um, it's the process whereby the wrath of God against sin and the death sentence for sin is dealt with in the person of Jesus Christ. It's basically God covering our sin and clothing us with his righteousness. Now, what I want to do is I want to take about seven minutes, and I'm going to give you a bullet point speed through what is the gospel, okay? I'm going to give you the summary version of the necessity and the foundation of the atonement, and then I'm going to unpack a couple of things scripturally that I think are going to help you understand it even more, okay? So here's the summary. God created mankind in love for relationship with him. Sin separates us from God. Sin merits the wrath of God, his just punishment, both the wrath of God against sin and the love of God towards mankind must be satisfied. Because God is perfect love and because he is perfect holiness, both of those elements of his nature have to be satisfied. Isaiah 59 says, your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. All mankind was guilty and deserved to die. Every man was responsible for his own sin. Ezekiel 18.20 says, the, sin that souls shall, the, the soul that sins shall die. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. And we read Romans 3.23 already. God is always true to his nature. Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. He always does what he says he will do. The penalty for sin was death, that penalty had to be paid. God cannot tolerate sin or ignore it. He can't just 
turn away and shove it under the rug. Because he is fully just and because he is always faithful, he must deal with sin on account of his goodness, his love, and his holiness and his justice. This should give us great confidence in the faithfulness of God. But the wrath of God must be poured out on sin. Only a man could pay the penalty for man's sin. No, it, it, nobody else could pay it. Man sinned, man must die. Only a man can pay the penalty for man's sin. God puts in place a temporary covering or provision through animal sacrifice. Now, it seems so weird to think of animal sacrifice today, but this was God's temporary provision for sin. Leviticus 17.11 says, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement unto life. Animal sacrifice, however, did not solve the sin problem. It was a covering It was temporary, but it didn't deal with the matter of the heart. It was a constant reminder that because of sin, death is necessary. Hebrews 10.4 says that, that if those sacrifices had fully dealt with sin, then they wouldn't have done those sacrifices anymore. But because they continue year after year after year, it's a constant reminder that the reality of sin is still present says, in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. It's impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sin. So God enacts his plan of redemption. This atonement plan was determined before the foundations of the world that God himself would pay the penalty for man's sin. Revelation 13.8 says that he's the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. Peter even talks about that he was foreordained before the foundations of the world, and he has revealed, he has made manifest now unto you. Problem with that, God wants to pay the penalty for sin, God can't die. God can't die as God. He's eternal, he's immortal, and so God becomes a man. The atonement is the very reason for the incarnation. It's the very reason that we sing songs on Christmas about Emmanuel, God with us. Now, you'll deal with the the incarnation in a whole nother teaching because that's really hard to understand, but it's so important to our faith. So God can't die as God. He becomes a man. Jesus had to be fully God in order to be qualified to pay the penalty for sin. He had to be fully man in order to identify with mankind in our sin and our suffering. So he had to be both God and both man. And we see this very clearly throughout the scriptures. Isaiah 7, 14 says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So we see in Scripture both the necessity for this Messiah figure to be both God and man. Jesus came to die. This was his purpose in coming to earth. He's the best missionary ever. He left the beauty of heaven and came to earth. Wow, that's powerful, right? So he came to die. John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Mark 
10.45 says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's the very reason that he came. Jesus was the only one qualified to pay the price for sin. The penalty of sin was death. Every priest that ever stood making atonement through temporary sacrifices was himself subject to sin. So they weren't qualified to pay the ultimate penalty on behalf of others. But Jesus, as a sinless God-man, was fully qualified to pay the price on behalf of another. And he actually had to die. He couldn't just prick his finger and pour out one drop of his sinless blood. His life had to be poured out because death was the penalty. His death was once and for all. As our great high priest, Jesus entered the true tabernacle of heaven with his own blood, which is perfect and incorruptible. He put the, the, his own blood on heaven's mercy seat. We're going to go into that in just a little bit. But Hebrews 10 says, This man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So he paid the price. But the reality is God can't stay dead. Because sin has no claim over him. Death only comes through sin. So God can't stay dead. He was sinless and perfect. Hence, the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 is the very best chapter in all of Scripture that talks about the resurrection and the power of the resurrection. A couple verses here from 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith also is empty. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men to be most pitied. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. We receive this gracious gift of salvation by grace, through faith, Ephesians 2, 4 through 9 says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sin and trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming of the ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We receive it by grace through faith. And the natural response then is repent, believe, and be baptized. And we see this pattern throughout the scriptures that Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Believe the kingdom, believe the gospel. And we see Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost and the people are cut to the heart when they realize the gravity of of what took place through Jesus' death on the cross. And they say, what shall we do? And he says, repent from your sins believe and be baptized. That is the natural response. So in a nutshell, that is the gospel. Now, a lot of us have heard that gospel, 
or else you probably wouldn't be sitting here. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of us have actually heard this gospel, but there's a lot of people that don't understand what is this based on. You know, what's unfortunate is that early in the trajectory of Christian history, there was such a separation from the Jewish context of the scriptures there was such a separation from the, the types and the shadows and the reality that took place in the history and the culture of Israel as a representative people that we often don't read the Bible for its entirety, what it is, and we don't see it in context. How can you ever understand the idea of the veil tearing when Jesus dies on the cross if you don't understand what the purpose of that veil was there for? How do we understand the idea that that blood covers our sin if we don't understand the roots, the foundation of where it came from? So sadly, a lot of Christians don't even read the Old Testament anymore because they think it's not relevant. But you will never understand the gospel. You'll never understand the reality that's in Christ if we don't understand the context that it came from. So I want to I want to highlight a couple of things that are maybe not super apparent to a lot of believers that just are not super familiar with the patterns and the traditions through which a lot of these types and shadows come. And I'm hoping that this will help you understand a little bit more of the reality of of the terminology that we talk about. I want to demystify a little bit of like the blood of Jesus. You know, enter the holy place. Some of these things were like if, if, if we were asked to explain that to someone, I'm not sure people would, would always know where to start. And I don't say that to shame anyone. I say that to encourage us to read the entirety of the scriptures. All right, but we have to understand the pattern in order to really understand the provision, right? Okay, so we saw last week that God provided a temporary solution for sin through animal sacrifice, vicarious blood sacrifice, the death of one on behalf of another. We see this alluded to with Adam and Eve being clothed with the skins of something that apparently had to die, right? And then we see even after um, Noah in, in the ark, they come out of the ark and, and what happens, what does he do first? He makes a sacrifice. Can you imagine being that poor sheep? They survived. They got on the ark. They lived that whole time. They come out of the ark, and all of a sudden, Noah's like, here, sheepy, 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 sheepy. And he sacrifices them. I mean, to me, that's irony. But, you know, have you ever thought about that? I think about that. When I read my Bible, I think about things like this. I see the humor of God in everything. But anyways, um, we see that through Noah. We see that through the, uh, the covenant with Abraham. Every covenant in the Bible involved sealing with blood. And that we don't, thank God we don't really do that today. But blood was really important. We, so we see a temporary solution for sin through vicarious blood sacrifice. We see this modeled through the representation of Israel. In the same way that Adam's humanity was representative of sin being um, apparent in all humanity now. Israel is also a representative, a light to the nations. Not just was, but still is. This is how God wanted to deal with all of humanity. And he chose a people group in order to demonstrate to the nations, to the world, how he wanted to deal with humanity. And we see in the very initial phases of Israel's identity as a people, God's plan for salvation. We see this through the Exodus. The Exodus is, uh, I mean, it is so part of the identity of Israel. It, it, they, they come out of bondage. They come out of slavery. And they come out 
with this illustration of salvation through blood sacrifice. So the redemption is seen initially in the Exodus. Exodus 2, 23 and 24 says, the people groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and he saw the people of Israel and he knew. Oh, I just love that. It just shows the love of God. He heard, he remembered, he saw, and he knew. Even before there was this formed identity as the people of God, God's hearing their cry for salvation. And he, he initiates their identity as a people by bringing them out of bondage, bringing them out of slavery. And we see this in the pattern of the Passover. And how many of you ever celebrated Passover? Passover is so, so meaningful. And sadly, it was, it was separated from its actual context of the resurrection in, uh, in early Christianity. So now where Easter and Passover seem like completely different holidays, biblically, they're not. They are absolutely connected. And if you don't see that Jesus was crucified on Passover as the Passover lamb, and that when he had his last supper with his disciples, it was a Passover meal, you're not going to understand some of the reality of the application of the atonement. So in the Passover, this is in Exodus 12, we see a spotless lamb without blemish is taken into the house and killed at twilight on the 14th day of Nisan, which, by the way, Passover this year starts the evening of April 5th, which is in like two weeks. They would take the blood, and they would put it on the lintels and on the doorposts of the house, so on the top and on the sides, and they would sprinkle the blood on the house. This is what the Lord told them to do. They would partake of the lamb inside together as a family, all of it, and when judgment came, God, this is, this is God pouring out his judgment on Egypt. The, the angel of death or judge, death would pass over the homes that were, that were christened really with the blood of the lamb. Can you see some elements of our faith in that, right? So the Lord passed over and death didn't touch the houses with the people that were, that showed faith by putting blood on the doorposts. Exodus 19, Israel meets with God at Sinai. We see the initiation of the Mosaic Covenant. We see the law. And we see another representation that's really important for us to understand salvation, the priesthood. God initiates a priesthood that represents on behalf of the rest of the people. He initiated a regular pattern of sacrifice, substitutionary death, ceremonial requirements. This, this priesthood would do acts of sacrifice on a regular basis that would cover the people. Death actually increased with the giving of the law, but we also see that there's a prophetic hope that comes into place of how God will redeem his people from the penalty of death. So God put in place an intermediary, a form of intercession before God and man with the holy priesthood. Now, it's interesting. I was reading this morning, actually, in Leviticus, and and it, well, actually, this was in Exodus where it talks about it. But Aaron, who's the high priest, his sons try and offer a sacrifice their way. They try and do it their way without reverence for God's way. And the fire of God comes out of the sanctuary and burns them to a crisp. 
I mean, there was some fear of God. God was really significant. I mean, he was really specific about how things were to take place because they serve as a pattern of the reality that's in Christ. And so, I mean, he says, you know, they can't offer profane sacrifices. They can't do it their way. It has to be through the priesthood and it has to be done in the right way. Now, how many of you have seen Indiana Jones? All right, so you know where I'm going with this, right? The Ark of the Covenant. So we know this as, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, Indiana Jones. Okay, this actually is the mercy seat. And we read about this in Exodus 25. This is a box of acacia wood that's overlaid with gold inside and out. It was meant to be carried on poles by the priesthood. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's rod that budded, a jar of manna, and the tablets of the law. So these are put inside the Ark of the Covenant, and then there's this, uh, there's this seat, there's this lid that's put on top, and it's called the mercy seat. The word for this is propitiation. The mercy seat is what is called propitiation. That's a really big theological word that we use now, but I'm going to explain it to you right now. Okay, so the lid of this Ark of the Covenant had two angels, cherubim, that were on top, and their, and their, their wings were facing one another, touching in the middle, and there was a seat, kind of a spot in the middle there that blood would go on, okay? So once a year on the Day of Atonement, and read about this in Leviticus 16, a high, the high priest would enter in through the veil. Now there was a, there was a veil. There was three, you guys read a little bit about the tabernacle. There's the outer courts, there's the inner courts, and then there's the holy of holies. There's the most holy place. And only the high priest could go in and only once a year. Now there's this veil that separates the outer courts from the holy of holies or the inner courts from the Holy of Holies. And they say that it was woven like the thickness of a man's hand. It was really, really thick, okay? And so inside, they would place this Ark of the Covenant, and the high priest would go in once a year. He would first have to wash himself. He would first have to offer a sacrifice on behalf of his own sins because he too had sinned. And then he would take the blood of a bull and a goat and actually enter in through the veil and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And it would cleanse the people from all of their sins. I mean, it's pretty amazing to think about this. And it actually says that they would sprinkle the blood on the people too. I, I don't really like to think about how messy that was. I mean, these, they're, Vaughn and I were talking about this this morning. Like, there is so much sacrifice in the Old Testament. If you really read it, you will see there is so much blood. So much blood, like all the time, these sacrifices and bulls and goats and, and, and sheep and pigeons and grain offerings. And I mean, so much blood. Their hands were covered with it all of the time. But on the Day of Atonement, this priest would go in and would make atonement on behalf of the people and they would be clean. You know, they still honor this in Israel today. And it's actually a beautiful day when they don't sacrifice anymore because there's no temple, but We'll get into that another time. But they all wear white, and they still believe that their sins are atoned for. So we see in this mercy seat and the Day of Atonement, this idea of a priesthood that covers the sins of the people, satisfying the wrath of God. So when God would look down on the law, which brings judgment and death, what would he see on the mercy seat? Blood. And it would be evidence that a life was poured out and that there was there was, there was redemption available. 
So those are types and shadows. Hebrews 8.5 says that they serve a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. In Colossians 2.17 says these are a shadow of the things that are to come, but the reality is found in Christ. If you ever read through the book of Exodus, there's a phrase that pops out over and over again. And it says that Moses did things exactly as the Lord had commanded him on the mountain. Exactly as the Lord had commanded him on the mountain. Why? Because the reality of when those things come into place with Jesus Christ, who died, was buried, and was resurrected, we're going to see those things come into place with the, the idea the concept of atonement. And that's why it had to be so exact. So we see a promise throughout scriptures for a permanent solution that was not just this temporary over and over offering sacrifices. You see this messianic hope begin to arise in the prophets. You see Balaam actually prophesy that there will be a star, a scepter that comes out of the root of of David, uh, out of the tribe of Judah. You see in Micah this promise that a Messiah is going to come out of Bethlehem, be born in Bethlehem. You see in Isaiah that, that, that there's that he would be both man and he would be God. He would be born of a virgin. You see all of these prophetic things start to arise through the scripture that point to a future reality. In Jeremiah 31, we see the promise of a new covenant. It says, in those days, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them out of, the, out of Egypt. That covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord says, I'm going to make a covenant with the house of Israel, and I'm going to write it on their hearts. I'm going to be their God. They're going to be my people. No longer will they each teach his neighbor, but they're going to know me. So there's this prophetic cry for a new covenant to be inaugurated. And Isaiah 53 is probably the best passage in scripture that talks about who would be the one to fulfill this covenant. You see, Israel expected a natural deliverer, a king, They expected somebody to save them from oppression, but he came as a suffering servant. It says that he poured out his life unto death. If you you read through the entirety of the book, uh, um, Isaiah 53, it's, it's powerful, this illustration that talks about this man who has borne our sorrows. He's familiar with grief. He was stricken by God, by his stripes, We've been made whole. He poured out his off, his life as an offering unto sin. He was numbered with the transgressors. It's a beautiful passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing for the sake of time, but it says that he made interse- intercession for the transgressors when he poured out his soul unto death. So now we look at the cross and we look at Jesus who came to die fully God, fully man. He comes to pour out his life willingly, not not because the Jews killed him, not because Rome killed him. He says, I offer my life as a sacrifice. And Isaiah 53 says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So he was the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. But in time, he actually took on that role of pouring out his blood through crucifixion. And if you understand what Roman crucifixion was, it was one of the most horrible, tragic, torturous ways to die with every imaginable pain, psychologically, body, soul, spirit. I mean, it was awful. God entered humanity. Christ willingly gave his life 
and paid the price for our sins. Jesus experienced death for us so that we don't have to die spiritually. We can be made alive. I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up here. I know we're a little bit over time, but I want to talk about how Jesus became our Passover lamb. You know, he was crucified on Passover. And when he died, it says that the veil was torn from top to bottom. What a miracle. So we see that access was granted to the presence of God. And even today, there's a Passover Seder that's celebrated. And there's four cups of wine that they drink at the Passover Seder. And these cups are representative, looking back to the Exodus, looking back to deliverance from bondage, deliverance from slavery, and redemption. So these cups are the cup of sanctification. These are, these are out of Exodus 6, 6 and 7, where it says, I will take you out. The cup of sanctification. I will save you. The cup of deliverance or judgment. I will redeem you. The cup of redemption. And I will take you as a nation or a people unto myself. And that's the cup of praise. And in a Passover Seder, the first two cups are taken at the beginning of the meal and the last two at the end. Now, when Jesus sat with his disciples at the Last Supper, the scripture says that after the meal, he took the cup and he lifted it up. And many scholars believe that he was fulfilling the Passover Seder, and this would have been the cup of redemption. And this is where he says, Behold, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of many sins. So he fulfilled that cup of redemption. And I mean, it, it breathes new life into the concept of the blood, right? When we understand that the level of sacrifice that took place in, in, on the day of atonement and in the Passover and yearly, consistently, when we see that level of blood, when we, it, it makes much more sense when we see the blood of Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for us. So as our great, and then we see another illustration, remember on the day of atonement, it was only the high priest that would go in. We see another illustration of that that is exemplified in the book of Hebrews. If you ever really, really want to understand the priesthood of Jesus on our behalf, read the book of Leviticus and the book of Hebrews together, and you will have a completely new understanding of the work that Jesus did for us. It says that Christ appeared as our great high priest, high priest of the good things that have come. And he went into a, the tabernacle of heaven, not made with human hands. He entered once for all into the holy place, by, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, securing our eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the person in the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In Hebrews 10, it says, by that will, by the will of God, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
once for all. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you see in the crucifixion, Jesus as our Passover lamb, Christ as our great high priest. You know, when the veil was torn, scholars actually believe that the tabernacle is a picture of the reality that's in heaven. Jesus entered in with his own blood, which Peter says it's incorruptible. So presumably it still lives. It's a crazy thought. He put that on the mercy seat in heaven so that there's no more judgment when we're under that blood, when we're in him. It's a free gift, but we still have to respond by faith. There's this partnership between God and man where God offers a free gift and he says, do you want it? And the response that we, we say, yes, I want that. And we receive by grace through faith the free gift of his blood that covers us. I know there's a lot of theological terminology and understanding in some of these things, but I, I really hope that seeing the Passover, seeing the Day of Atonement, seeing the, the representation of one on behalf of many can help us understand the blood of Jesus, the one sacrifice on behalf of many. I think our response today I think we'd like, I'd like to, us to do communion. So I don't want to disrupt the atmosphere in here right now, but if you guys could, if anybody would like to join in communion as a faith response, just make your way up here and grab a communion cup. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is teaching about the Lord's Supper. And he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It says that we're not to eat or drink of this in an unworthy manner, but we're to examine ourselves. 
for those who are in, who believe, for those who are in Christ, this is a remembrance of that blood that was poured out for us. Let's take the bread together. Lord, we thank you for your body that was broken for us. Your word says that by your stripes, we've been made whole. You were bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that we deserved that brought us peace was upon your shoulders. Lord, we receive of this in faith today. Thank you that your body was broken that we might know life. Lord, we thank you for your blood. It's such a concept that it's hard for us to understand, but your blood actually cleanses us. It makes us whole, renews us. Thank you, Lord, that your life was poured out unto death so that we might know life. Thank you for your blood, Lord. For more information on Authentic Church, visit us online at AuthenticOC.com.